So our text today, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 13, the word of God. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as it is said, I swore in my wrath that they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, They shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by, fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is a living and active, sharper than in a two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eye of, he, of him to whom we must give account. The word of God. I love that when we do this outside, I get bugs in my Bible, and then every once in a while I squish a bug in my Bible, and I find it later when I'm studying. I had a bird poop on this Bible when we were out at the lake. I think they do want to get involved, Barney. And, and you know, if, you, if a bird poops on your head, they say it's good luck. If a bird poops on your Bible, is it, <laughs> is it good luck? It's all funny, too, because all, all of the, uh, the spilled coffee, the bird, and the bugs all seem to be like Ephesians 5, Ephesians 6. <laughs> if only God was giving me a sign. Um, <clears throat> okay, so the good news is I think everybody here knows me well, and I would assume, if we're being honest, that the word restful and me do not go along together when could you define us can you use it as a sentence i would imagine if you think of me restful is not the first word that comes to your mind and i would also say that through most of my adult life i've been going through it with my hair on fire at mach 9.0 which is nobody's fault but my own i am most likely and for sure the author of my own restlessness and even so much this week brian and i were talking and this was before I told Brian what I was preaching on, and he exhorted me. See, I used that word from last week's sermon. Yeah, it's good stuff. Um, for my restless behavior. He even reminded me that I pledged to him that when I made these changes, I would have more time. I did. <laughs> and he called me square out on it. So I would say that rest for me and my restlessness are personal areas of improvement. And my guess is, and Barney, we were talking inside about your workaholism and my workaholism. These possibly could be areas of improvement for you as well. And so my prayer for us as we talk about this tonight is that we actually grow together because I need your help in me being accountable for being in rest as much as I would imagine you probably need my help as well. So 
I think it's important for us to think about how restless we currently are. And, and I mean like socially and societally, because I think that restlessness is a very large problem. I would even argue that the drive and strive for more that we have culturally, have to have new things, have more that pervasive need for newer is a cultural symptom of the restlessness that people in general are experiencing. And what I really believe is that our restlessness is tied to the fact that we actually lack trust in God. We spoke last week, and I'll send you, I have a link for those of you who weren't here to the sequential teaching if you want to listen to it, but about the importance of trust and belief in God. And we talked about how belief and unbelief are indicators of our trust in God. And we aren't supposed to have blind faith because that's what leads us to be in a cult. We're supposed to have faith, but we verify. That's why the Bible has names and timelines and all of these pieces to be able to validate the legitimacy of what is being said. But as the author told us last week, there are consequences for disbelief. And the big consequence from disbelief is it actually separates us from God. And so for us to be in a trusting place of God, we have to be in a place of believing God. And because we, the way the Bible, so the way the Bible was originally written, it wasn't written in chapters and it wasn't written in verse. People who canonized scripture broke it apart so it was more readable. These were letters. So the page breaks that we see within chapter 3 and chapter 4 are our creation to separate the text. They were not the original author's creation. And so that's important because if we're talking about belief last week and we're talking about rest this week, those two things are intrinsically tied because it's the continuation of the same conversation. And so what we're really going to talk about today, the big idea, is this idea of rest. And there's really two areas of rest that are, are being m mentioned here and wrestled with in this passage. The idea of being in rest today, the author uses that word, currently, and in an idea of what rest looks like in the future. And so this, this huge cultural quest for more, right? This, we've talked about this before, the bigger house or the nicer car, the higher paying job or a newer computer. Even yesterday, we turned on a little bit of the Olympics and I haven't watched like a legitimate commercial in forever, but it's NBC streaming it. And so the commercials are playing in Verizon's like, hey, turn in your phone and we'll give you $800 and you can have a new one. So you can be on 5G, even if your current phone works totally fine, right? There's, there's a restlessness, there's a need to get more and more and more. And so the question that we must examine today, are any of the things that we're striving after here actually providing us any rest? Is working like crazy so that you can go on your vacation so that you can rest on your vacation, but then you're so stressed about the actual vacation because you really have to enjoy it because you work so hard to get there actually providing you any rest. And I, of course, I would argue that it's not. And I know this feeling because I've lived this and still do currently sometimes live within this space. I've been in that space where working like crazy, but talking about what it's gonna be like later, all I gotta do, I mean, looking at you, baby, I'm sorry. <laughs> all I got to do is work like three more really busy weeks and then we can, right? All the qualifiers. If I, if I pay off the, the rest of the student loan, then we can. So it's an endless cycle with actually very little actual rest. And even that whole concept of work, rest, work, rest, work, rest, that's not the biblical concept of rest. Biblical rest is actually rest that is without anxiety. It's the indicator of true peace. It's not a vacation, it's a state of being. You can 
be on a vacation and be restful. But the, the rest that we're talking about here is actually a state of being that we can actually be in when we're working as well. And so that's what the author in the passage is going to tell us about, that we can achieve biblical rest, real true rest, through our faith in Jesus. So one of the things that we see in Hebrews and we also see all out the Bible is that God makes promises. And I think we all make promises a lot, and we probably all make promises that we don't actually intend to keep as well. We use that term promise very loose now. This is not the same way God looks at promises. I mean, I may say something like, hey, I promise to be at your house next Saturday, with all intention to be there, and then something happens, I don't show up to your house next Saturday. So my promise doesn't hold the weight that it really should. I mean, I shouldn't promise to go to your house unless I do. So I think sometimes when we say that word within our cultural context, and then we try to apply that context to God, we have a misrepresentation. But God isn't us. When God promises something, he will deliver it. If you look all throughout the Old Testament, God makes promises to the Israelites, and he delivers on those promises. Same in the New Testament. God makes promises to people, and he delivers on them. Um, another word that we would use for promise is a covenant. It's, a, it's, it's something that God guarantees that he will do. There are good things he guarantees that he will do, and there are bad things or consequences to the good things as well. He promises us suffering if we believe in him, and he delivers on them, that. He also promises us rest if we believe on, in him, and he provides us that. So to differentiate between what most of us think is rest and biblical rest, we have to look back at the concept of a Sabbath. And if you remember, the concept of the Sabbath comes from the Ten Commandments, theologically known as the Decalogue. So if you spend a bunch of money on a higher ed theology degree, you get to use cool words like Decalogue, Septuagint. Yeah, those fancy words. <laughs> College words. So if we look at Exodus um, chapter 20, verses um, 8, 8 through 11, this is the part of the Ten Commandments given to Moses at Mount Sinai. And verse 8 says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So God rested on the seventh day. Uh, it's uh, 20, verse 8 through 11. And if God, God Almighty, the most powerful, can rest, then that also means, by indicative nature, we have a capability to be in some type of rest, especially if we're created in the image of God. So for Jews, especially ultra-religious Jews, Pharisees, back when this was written, ultra-Orthodox Jews today, the Sabbath and Sabbath observance is one of the defining marks of the Jewish people. It is probably one of the most celebrated of their ritualistic, kind of legalistic events. Uh, one Jewish scholar was known as saying, more than the Jews have kept the Sabbath, the Sabbath has kept the Jews. This idea that their participation in separating from work for one day of the week has kept them united together as a people. But religious Jews take an incredibly legalistic view to the Sabbath. Their approach is that to honor the Sabbath, they have 39 prohibited labors that they must stay away from. These labors are things like lighting a fire, carrying, engaging in business, writing, um, the, the Jewish scholars and the Pharisees. So when the way this all kind of, you think, well, where does it say, you know, don't light a fire in here? How do we come up with that? So 
I'm going to tell you how it came up with. Jewish scholars read through the five books of Moses, and then they argued about what they meant. And so uh, religious Jews don't eat cheeseburgers because they don't. There's a line in Leviticus that tells you not to boil a kid in its mother's milk. And so a bunch of religious scholars arguing about it, trying to hold more strict than the law said. Well, that obviously means we shouldn't mix milk and meat. So if you went into a religious ultra-Orthodox Jew's home today, there'd be two sets of plates. They might even have two dishwashers, depending on how legalistic they want to approach this. Um, <clears throat> so you can't do things if you were a religious Jew, an Orthodox Jew right now, like on a Saturday, like driving a car or cooking food, or you can't carry, like I can't carry a gift from my house to Brian's house unless it's within the walls of a temple and you can make the walls of a temple with fishing line around. There's all the workarounds, just like with the IRS. You can, uh, we were talking about earlier, that's our tax write-off. There's all kinds of workarounds within religious law as well. But the idea was that they would remove themselves from any labor, these 39 prohibited labors. The problem is it doesn't actually put you in a place of rest. I was an Orthodox Jew. I tried to do this. Legalism never gets you any rest because you're so busy trying to think, okay, wait, it's Saturday. I can't turn the light switch on. Oh, shoot. I got to leave those lights on the whole time. Can we cook? Did we start that thing beforehand? This, it's the same spinning of like the rest before the vacation and getting to the vacation thing that you're supposed to rest in because you're so worried about maintaining the accuracy of the law. So you spend your whole time thinking about how stressed you are about trying to make sure you're following the rules to be restful and then worrying if you were really restful enough. So obviously this isn't what we do and how we approach the Sabbath, but Remember, this book was written predominantly to Jews, so the Hebrews really would have understood this concept of the Sabbath, and they would have understood this concept of God resting on the seventh day because it was built intrinsically into their culture. But what they didn't really know was how to apply this to actually be in a restful state. And so the author here gives them the answer to that. He tells them that it's Jesus. That's why he uses this example, and I didn't put this in my notes, but he says, verse 8, for if Joshua had given them rest, God wouldn't have spoken of another day later on. So Joshua comes after Moses. Moses leads the Jews out of Israel, parts the Red Sea, slams on a rock against God's order. God punishes him and says, you can't go to Israel. This is like Old Testament in a, <laughs> the cliff notes of the Old Testament version. And God says, hey, listen, you can look over there. You can see Israel. You don't get to go. He had a disciple, uh, somebody that he was training up named Joshua. And Joshua then took the Jews into the promised land. The point that the author is making is if a person could have provided the Jews rest, God wouldn't have had to say anything. So right there, we already know that self-help programs and people and things like that cannot actually provide us deep rest. It has to come from something bigger than us. So that's where the promise of Christ comes in. The promise is if we're in Christ, we get to be restful. And not only do we get rest in the future, the new heaven, the new earth, the life after death, but we actually get to taste some of it right now. And we talked about this a little bit last week about our passage of beliefs. We get to experience some of the benefits of faith now. Sometimes we get to experience them more robustly and other times not, all with the faith and trust that they will fully manifest themselves in the new heaven and the new earth. But we get this foretaste. It's like foreshadowing in a movie. You get, you get a little bit of the sweetness, a little bit of the taste. It's, Chris and I were looking at the forget-me-nots over 
by uh, the, the fence. My aunt passed away, they were her favorite flower. So we, we spread some of those seeds and some of the other wildflower seeds. There's a richness and a beauty, like there's teeny little flowers that are just exploding and erupting in color. We get to experience beauty here that is a foretaste of beauty later. Otherwise, why would there even be beauty? So we know that God's going to provide us these things, this rest, because it was promised to us. And we know that God is a keeper of his promises. So he's going to give us a, a little bit of a taste now of what future rest is going to feel like later. But there's also a flip side, right? So we know that in everything in life, there's cause and effect and there's consequences to action. Some of them provide us positive outcomes and some of us provide them or provide us negative outcomes. So if the author is telling us that our belief in Christ will lead us to rest, then what about those who aren't in belief of Christ? Well, then they must have a different experience. So the author says, if you're not faithfully living within Christ, then you don't get to experience true rest. The consequence is one full of restlessness. And he's using the Jewish people again as an example because not all the Jews got to go to Israel. Those before they entered Israel with Joshua, the unbelieving Jews died in the wilderness and the believing Jews entered the promised land. So again, he uses an example to make his point that just because you believe that you're part of the chosen people, if you don't have faith and trust in God, it doesn't actually end up well for you. So we go back to that, that idea, that cultural American concept of striving for more things. So if we put our thinking caps on, how many people in our life that are maybe wealthy or maybe they aren't wealthy but they pretend to be, and, and they're highly focused on the acquisition of things. As they get more and more things, if you take a look at them deeply, do they seem happier? And maybe not even happiness. That's not the right word. I put this in my notes too because I wanted to hit on the difference between happiness and joy. Because there's a big difference between happiness and joy. You can be really happy when the Amazon truck pulls up front and brings your new motorcycle helmet. I'm pretty happy about that. But I'm not going to get any joy out of that. There's a big difference. Happiness is always fleeting. Happiness is tied to something. I get the newer house. I'm going to be happy. I get, actually, I talked to a friend of mine on the phone last night. <laughs> and I made a joke. Because <laughs> that's what I do. Because they bought this huge house. And then they sold it like eight months later to buy a bigger, huger house because his wife wasn't happy with the first big, huge house. And so I made a joke. I was like, hey, maybe we should come see your new house unless you've moved to a third big new house. And of course, they sold the second big house to buy a third, even larger house back near the first big house, as he said slightly with shame on the phone. But happiness is temporary. Oh, if I just get this house, I'm going to feel a lot better. If I just get this job, I'm going to feel so much better where joy is really permanent. Things, anything that's contingent can never actually bring you joy. So now think about those people that are in the constant need for acquisition of stuff. Do they seem to be joyful people? Is their joy actually permanent? If you took away any of the stuff, would they still be living in the same level of joy, joyfulness maybe, or even ask yourself if that's a thing internally to you, would you still be living in that same place of joyfulness? And my guess, the an my guess to that answer for all of us is no. And it was true for me because there was a long time where the acquisition of stuff was really important to me, especially after I got divorced and I had no debt and I had the financial means to buy things. I went and bought a bunch of stuff. I bought all the stuff that I had wanted and none of it actually brought me any joy. So why do people that have less see more 
joyful than, than people that have more. Why do poor people have an easier time coming to God than rich people? And the Bible talks about that all over the place, about the challenges of the rich man coming to faith. And the real answer is, and we've talked about it here, is that when we do so well, sometimes, many times, most times, we like to attribute it to us instead of the gifts that God has provided us to earn those things, to shepherd those things appropriately for him. And I think what happens is that the less that you have, the more you realize how dependent you are. And dependency is such a negative, negative word now, especially here in the United States. We don't want to be dependent. Now, I have political feelings about welfare states and, and helping push people up that are different, but that's different than dependency. We are all dependent. We are dependent on God. He provides the air in our lungs. He renews us each and every moment. And I think when you have a lot less, you start to realize what is actually really important and that none of it is actually in your control. That's why when you end up in, in church communities in places like Rwanda, where the church plant that we are planting through comes from, these people are, are so deeply invested in their faith because they realize that all of their trust and all of their dependence ultimately comes from God. It doesn't come from the work that they were doing. And so the more that you have, usually it's harder for you to appreciate it. But the less, the, the less that you have, you are so much more appreciative of the actual needs and necessities. And some of it boils down to kind of the disposable nature of where we live right now. We treat everything as disposable. Your marriage is disposable. It's actually not. Just in just in case in case you didn't know, but I was I used to make a lot of jokes, um, relatively unkind jokes about my ex-wife and the marriage, especially after I got divorced, which got a lot of laughs. But in hindsight, aren't really that funny. And it, it kind of clicked with me. We were in Georgetown this last weekend, last uh, Sunday, and we went to there's an ice cream shop and a candy shop in Georgetown that we always stop with with the kids. And on the you know just like a little shelf, there were coffee mugs, and they all had like kind of snarky things to say about the ex-spouse on them, which were the same snarky jokes I would have made a couple years ago. But then you start to realize it's not really funny because we shouldn't treat our marriage as disposable. Now, there are times and there are reasons to get divorced and there are divorced people here, so, and there are non-divorced people here. But nobody, when, we, when, we, when I went to go tell people I was getting divorced, Nobody was really upset about it, which I think says something culturally about how we treat that. And it's not just marriage. It's all your goods, too. When something breaks, what do we do? We go on Amazon, we click a button, and it's delivered to our front porch the next day. When, when your furnace breaks, you say, well, I kind of expected that to happen. Those things only last five years. When, when the car breaks down, you could pay to get it fixed, or you could just trade it, and you, know, you can donate the empty car, and they've got really low interest rates on brand new ones. So just go get a new one. Everything is disposable. And then I think about the amount of waste that we create. My, my recycle bin is overflowing with Amazon stuff because I like the convenience factor of having WD-40 just delivered to my front door the very next day. Or I broke a shoelace this morning before going to officiate the funeral and Holden was nice enough to give me another one. And I was like, well, I need to get replacement shoelaces. So I ordered them on Amazon. Instead of driving down to, remember Foot Locker? Is Foot Locker even still a thing? That's good. Or like, what was the, there was some discount. Pay less shoes. You go down, pay less shoes, and grab yourself a, a thing of shoelaces. So this, it's, and it's not just the waste, the environmental waste, which does upset me, but it's the psychology of always needing more. 
We are just, we're totally bought into things have to be new and shinier and upgraded and old is always bad. And that's probably part of the cultural reason why people aren't interested in any of this anyways, because if it's more than about a year old or six months old, that's outdated and useless. I mean, you, you work in software. Software that's six months old is, it's a dinosaur of software. <laughs> You're not even agile, man. <laughs> What'd you say, unless it's Windows. And then I've got a new solution about billionaires and rockets. I think we should just launch billionaires into space and rockets, but not bring them back. <laughs> just a little bit. Um, but I think when we focus on having more, it shows that we're not in a place of being restful. So then what is true rest? True rest is godly rest. It's rest that comes from a belief in God. It's the rest that comes from trust in God. So I've made a pastoral commitment for a Sabbath once a week. I, I, I have not been good at this really ever. And so I've made a decision that's going to be Fridays. Jesse, the guy I'm planting with, he takes his Sabbath on Fridays. No phone, no church work, no flying work, no gun shop work. This is not legalism. But with the Sabbath, you have to separate from the work things. Now, if you fall back in and answer an email, there's not, you know, 15 lashes for... Yeah, <laughs> well, but, but it's, it's, well, hold on, but it's not about excuses. It is about avoiding legalism. Yes, if you're right, though. But it's not 15 lashes. It's only 14 lashes. But the idea is that you have to make a physical commitment to separate two. But it doesn't mean you're going to legalistically sit and pout on your day of rest. The idea is to be in a day of rest where you're enjoying the things that God has provided you with the people that God has provided you. It is, it is about being present. That is a, an area that is hard for me when I'm running around at Mach 9.0. Am I, if I'm present with all of you, then maybe I'm not present with them like I should be, or vice versa. And so it's, it's a spiritual recharging of the batteries, and it's a way to show that we trust God. If we're willing to put it all down, especially the things that make us money, it's a, it's a physical act of trust in God to say, listen, I can take a day a week off because I can rationalize so easy. I'm like, well, you know, we got to pay off the trip and we're going to go to Florida in September and we got this other thing. And ah, it's just it's just three hours of work. I did that once. We crashed a plane. I'll be home before breakfast were my words. I was right, right. I made this commitment. And so <laughs> you have to balance and separate from getting into a legalistic place of it because we are not legalistic. I mean, Jesus said that he did not come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. But you have to make a commitment to separating yourself from those worldly things because God, one, he told you to do it, and two, there's spiritual benefits. And, and the biggest benefit of that is the fact that godly rest is peace. The, the Bible talks all over about the cure for anxiety. And, and it tells you that the cure for anxiety is a belief in God. And I remember we had some people from St. James at the table, and I didn't push back hard because I, I didn't quite have my pastoral sea legs under me yet. But she said, you can't, you can't tell me that you can be free from anxiety. And I was like, well, I mean, I guess you're right. But no, I can tell you. There is a cure for anxiety. I realize that clinical depression and clinical anxiety are very real things. But why has anxiety gotten so much worse in the last 25 years? Acquisition of stuff equals happiness. Anxiety goes way up. Up, 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 up we go. And so what do we do? We throw medicine at it. I am not saying you shouldn't take medicine if there are times you need to take medicine. I'm not anti-pill. But what I am saying, and this came, up, um, this came up with my soul care bishop when we talked. And we weren't even talking about meds at the time or medical things. He said, one of the challenges we have in America is we treat the symptom and not the cause. 
we go right to the symptoms say oh you're 500 pounds and you eat 15 Big Macs a day. How about gastric bypass surgery? Have you thought about that? Versus maybe get off the McDonald's and let's get you to a gym before we immediately go to gastric bypass surgery. Because the fact is, when we trust in God, we find real rest because we no longer stress about what's gonna happen tomorrow. We're able to live in the present of what's going on today. Because when we lean into God and we have full faith and full trust in the Lord that he will provide what we need, then it actually defeats our anxiety because we're no longer worried about what is going to happen. Anxiety, I am the king of the worrier. Like my dad was a, was a chronic worrier and I, I can come up with the worst case scenario for any situation and then like magnify it by a hundred times. And we've talked a lot about wants and needs. When we lean into God and we trust that he's gonna give us what we need, sometimes and many times it doesn't align with what we want. I was driving yesterday and I saw a very heavy set old white dude driving a very expensive brand new Ferrari. And I wanted that Ferrari. It's a cool car and it goes real fast. God does not think I need that Ferrari. So I do not have that Ferrari. <laughs> and I'd probably just get in trouble with that Ferrari anyways. But the reality is when we lean into trusting in God, then we're validating to him saying, yes, I know that you will give me what I need, even if it doesn't look like what I want. You, we do this with kids all the time. Kids want a whole bunch of things and we say, no, what you really actually need is this. Well, I want to spend this money. My, my grandfather died and he left just a teeny bit of money for me when I was like 18 years old, maybe it's $20,000. I shouldn't say teeny, $20,000 isn't teeny. But my mom had told me this $20,000 or whatever. I said, great, I'm gonna buy a motorcycle. And she said, you can have a down pay put a down payment on a condo. I was 18, I was like, but I want a motorcycle. And she said, you can put a down payment on a condo. Do you know what we did? We put a down payment on a condo. But it was great. I owned property at 18 years old, which I sold with equity and bought a house when Samantha and I first got married. When I was very young, I've had property in my name since I was just out of high school because she knew what I needed despite what I felt that I wanted. So we put, we put our trust in God, and then the rest that we get comes from the fact that we believe that what we're provided is actually what we need. We, we believe that it is enough. It's not that we want more. We are confident in what we have. And it's actually better than being good enough. It's excellent because it's exactly what we need. If you remember the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul talks about, I think it's in Philippians, being content in all things. He talks about being content when he was rich, when he was poor, when he was free, when he was enslaved, when he was high, when he was low. Paul was content when he was pr in prison, being tortured, knowing that he was going to die. He was in rest. I don't know if I could say that I was in the same place. I would say Jay, our friend today, who ended up in Craig Hospital, and was he a para or a quad? kind of a half para, yep, technically a quadriplegic. And one of the other gentlemen who was at the service rolled in his wheelchair up to me and came, you guys had already gone um, to Avery Hall, and he was just talking to me about <laughs> how they would be in like the, the gym, all these quadriplegics and paraplegics at Craig working on PT physical therapy, and Jay would roll by and give him a hard time because he wasn't working hard enough. These are these two guys are probably in their 60s together, but this really good natured kind of humor, like being content in the place. Well, I mean, nobody wants to be a quadriplegic. Can you imagine how life, I can't even imagine how life changing. What I said to this gentleman was, cause he was, he was really complimenting Jay's acceptance and contentment of the situation that God had put him in when he was not content in the situation that he was in. I don't, and I said to him, I said, I don't know if I would be that content. 
And I was talking to him about George. Kristen had a patient who was 15 years old. He was a para. Now he was a quadriplegic as well from a skiing accident, right? Snowboarding. And um, his dad was a pilot, and we got close with him, and he was, he was super snarky because he was a 15-year-old kid, which was really fun. Um, but the same kind of a deal, like finding this place of contentment, because most of us operate in a general area of discontent. Paul, knowing he's going to die, spending his time in prison, uses his time wisely to preach and share the word of God with the jailers, because what he did was he accepted the place where he was as where he was supposed to be in that exact moment. And that's why he could write so much about being joyful while still being imprisoned. His last two letters he wrote before he, um, before he died, First and Second Timothy, are like these, these love letters to his disciple Timothy of encouragement and joy. And he knows he's going to die in first century Roman prison. The, the letter to the church in Philippi is this, joy, this, this letter about rejoicing. It's about constant joy because he had peace, because he had rest, because he had contentment. And so I think that's where the big challenge for us is, the takeaway for tonight and how we're going to apply this message to our lives. It's, it's how do we find a way to be in rest? And we start here. We start with the Bible. We find rest when we're deep in Scripture. Uh, scripture encourages us to get closer to our Creator. It allows us to know more about God. The more we know about God, the Spirit gets to move in us and it encourages us to learn even more. That deepens that bond, the communion that we have with our Creator. And if we look at verse 12... Verse 12 says, For the word of God is a living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and the spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The word of God is living. What that means is that it still speaks to us today. It is not something that needs to be replaced or needs to be upgraded. It, it, it doesn't change. It is called the inerrant word of God. That word inerrant got me in a whole bunch of trouble at my last church because... The people that I were, the denomination we worked in, don't believe that. They believe this can be updated and changed and modified, and I don't believe that it can. And it really put us at odds with each other. It was over that one word. I published a statement of faith that said, I believe that the Bible is the inerrant word of God, and they, they ripped me apart for it. And so even though it doesn't change, it doesn't remove the fact that it is active. So as we read more and study more and we internalize more, God is actually able to work in our hearts deeper. That's the reason you feel compelled to go back into the Bible and not just go reread Stephen King's The Stand for the third time. Like, this is my favorite Stephen King novel. And I've enjoyed it. I've read it maybe a time and a half. But I'm not, I don't feel compelled to be like, oh, I should go open The Stand, chapter 30, paragraph 4, verse 3. But I do feel compelled to go reread Proverbs. I do feel compelled to go reread the Psalms. I do want to read the words that Jesus said again, because as I read more, the Spirit moves into me, and I get to learn more about who God is the deeper I get in Scripture. And then we spend more time learning about Him. We actually grow with Him. And then His Word becomes this beautiful, living, active thing that shapes us. And then we get to love him better, which allows us to trust him better. And then we get to leave a restful and anxiety-free life because of that circle completes itself. I know the stress that you are under. I've known Barney some of the stress that you've under. Lysix, we know some of the stress that you've been under. I definitely know your stress. I know your stress. That stuff can be crushing at times. You will have moments of anxiety. But what it allows us to do is turn back and get rerooted back into our creator to live in this really restful place. 
So I would also encourage you, don't ever let anybody tell you that the only cure for anxiety is medication or, or the only cure for depression is medication. There may be a time in your life that you may need those tools to help get you back into a place. We, we have a friend who, who went down a very, very dark, dark path. And sometimes we need help outside of ourselves here with other people to get us back to a place where we can function, to get us back into a place where spiritually we can reconnect. But we have to make sure that we're treating the cause and not the symptom. We have to make sure that we're not running off to, to doctors and others to look for band-aids for, for much deeper systematic problems. That We need to make sure that as we humbly and meekly approach life that we're not just trying to get more to keep up with the Joneses because the Joneses are broke and they're in a bunch of debt, and they're really unhappy anyways. Um, whereas our friends in Rwanda are living in huts and living a lot happier, deeper filled, more community loving lives than a lot of us were here. And so I would tell us that, that at least for me and my experience, the majority of our self-imposed problems and anxieties stem from a lack of deep belief and a deep trust in God. If we really trust God for where we are today and for the future of our lives, we will live a restful life and we will be in permanent rest. If, if human beings, like he says here about Joshua, could provide us the keys to live a restful life, we wouldn't need the Bible and we wouldn't be talking about this now. So the challenge, the takeaway, the action for all of us is I'm going to encourage you to take a Sabbath, a day to be in rest. Traditionally, it's Sunday for, for a lot of Christians. You go to church, you worship, you be together in community, you live in that vibrant place, you feast, you drink the good wine, you eat the good meat, and you spend the rest of the day not plugged into work not answering the email. The phone call can absolutely wait. Nobody will die if you don't respond to their text message, mostly, unless it says, if you don't answer this, I may die. <laughs> Maybe answer that one. But, but then spend that time with the people that you love, doing the things that you love, bike riding, skiing, going to the lake, playing games, juggling swords. Do you juggle swords? Yeah, you, that sounds like, sounds like you should start learning how to do that. Because what that's going to allow you to do is by, by making that promise or, or taking that action saying, I'm not going to invest myself in any of the work things I need to do today. God, I'm going to lean into you and trust you. You will provide for me. I don't have to work to be, crea a, be a creator today. I can just be. I can participate in this wonderful, beautiful world. Look at the backyard we have in Colorado. We have the most beautiful place in the world. We have water and we have mountains and we have mostly fresh air. Um, there's a bunch of hippies up in Boulder if you're, that, you're into that kind of a thing. I like, I like Boulder a lot. Um, and you can experience that and then by default you get to separate yourself from worry and anxiety. And that's a really beautiful place. It's a place of trust and belief and it will change all of our lives. And we're going to need to encourage each other. And I'm going to need your encouragement as well as I go down this path of trying to be restful. So let's pray.